0: You're listening to RiverCast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Steve. Hey, it's so good to see you guys today. I know I say that every week, but I genuinely mean it, you know. My kids, as they're adults, are moving out of the house. And when your kids come home, I don't care if you saw them the day before, isn't it good to see them, right? So it's good to see you guys, and uh, I always love being with you. I want to ask you a question this morning. Has, Has God ever cleaned your house? Has God ever come in? Has the Lord Jesus come and in your soul said, It's time to clean some of this stuff up? It's long enough. I, has He ever kind of gone through the, rummaged around in the living room and tossed some things out? Has He made His way into the bedroom? Has He opened up the closet, crawled in the attic, gone down in the basement? Has God ever? Clean the house of your soul. It's not usually a comfortable thing, right? I think if most of us had somebody right now that walked into our home that wasn't family and says, I'm just going to clean up for you, you would be like, no, let me do some cleaning first <laughs> to get rid of some embarrassment first. And then, okay, maybe I'll let you help me vacuum or you know, wash the car or whatever. But we don't like that. We don't like when somebody comes in and, and God's a lot more forceful. And depending on our attitude and how long he's been trying to get our attention and have these conversations, he can be really pointed at about it, and sometimes he can be just really gracious and winsome. And, but you and I, generally, we don't like people coming in and tell us what to do, and you need to throw this out, and this is, what are you doing, and all of that. Well, we're going to see this morning when Jesus comes and cleans house. Jesus comes and tells in no uncertain terms to cease and desist. And if all of us, had we been those people that he would have been talking to, we would have said, what in the world? Who gave you that right? Why are you doing this? So read with me if you would. John chapter 2, when God comes and cleans house. We're going to start the verse before. This is a small little verse but It's actually kind of important, and I'm going to share an important truth out of it in just a minute. But read with me, starting in verse 12. After this, he, talking about Jesus, went down to Capernaum. Remember last week, Jesus just changed the water into wine, and it was the, the wedding and all of that, and Steve uh, preached and shared that. I was in Lee Mass sharing with the church there. And, uh, but Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. It was family time. He was there with family and his closest followers who were there with him. In verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Now, can you imagine going to church one day, and like there's donkeys and cows, and like, uh, what in the world? Is it Christmas time? Is there a live nativity that somebody didn't tell us about today? What in the world is going on? So he goes into the temple. Supposed to be the high holy season, if you will, for the Jews. And he sees all of these animals and the money changers. We'll talk about all of them in just a minute. Sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So he wasn't driving the sheep and oxen out of the temple. He was driving the people out of the temple along with the sheep and the oxen. Who gives you the right? Why do you think you have the authority to do this? Who gave you that power and authority? Verse 19, Jesus said this. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. I can almost see him destroy this temple kind of with his hand. And in three days, I will raise it up. They were a little thick spiritually, like most of us, and they didn't get it. And they were thinking he was talking about this big temple that they were in. And the Jews said then, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Can you imagine coming into church, and and one day somebody walks in, and they... They come and they're like, what are you doing with coffee in here? And they flip over the coffee pots and they rip out you know, the, the carafes and they turn over the kids' check-in. They're like, what is with this computer? And they pull the computer. Can you imagine somebody you know, like, this is not what you're supposed to do at church. We would be like, what in the world? And then the second thing would be, somebody needs to call 911 because this person is losing their mind. We would just be crazy. Jesus comes, and this had become commonplace of the day, of, of, of the, the, the form of worship. And it would just been shocking to everyone. What was normal to them was actually shocking to Jesus, that they were actually that spiritually dull and dark, that they were clueless what any of this was about. I want to show you this morning four things. Four ways that Jesus shows that He is the Son of God in this passage and kind of the the things that that we need to learn from Jesus being the Son of God and what it means. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about is, is in verse 12. And the Bible makes just a little common kind of helping us to realize these are not fairy tales. These are not nice, cute little stories that are just... You know, put together like mother goose or whatever, that that there's a a sequence and events of history that's happening here. We're reading historical documents. And the Bible just gives us, John just gives us a little historical thing that says, you know, after this wedding in Capernaum, Jesus went with his mom and his his brothers and his disciples. So brothers are not disciples. This is not the spiritual family of God. These are these are blood relatives. And And they stayed there for a few days. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is the Son of God in his birth. In his birth. You see, the Bible tells us in Matthew and Luke that when Jesus was born, that he was the product of Mary and God the Holy Spirit supernaturally Bringing Jesus to conception inside of Mary, and that Joseph was not the biological father, every church in the world believes and recognizes that, but this verse tells us a little bit more information. It says that Jesus had brothers, and in church history and even to this day, there are many churches that would say Jesus did not have any siblings whatsoever, that there were no biological children that came from Mary, that Mary was not only a virgin at her birth but she stayed a virgin her entire life. Now, I want us to recognize that, and, and by the way, many of the churches that believe that would say that this word brothers in the original language, to show you I know something, it's autophos. It's what the Greek word is. I usually don't throw that around because don't be impressed with it, but anyway. But that word means brothers or brothers and sisters. It's kind of like we might say, you guys, you know, if you say you guys, it's, it's I know that's now not politically correct either, but it's men and women and all of that, right? So Greek had the same problem we do today. You just it didn't distinguish, you know, when it came to that word between men and women. But many would say, well, those brothers actually are cousins. They're like brothers. They're they're not Jesus. Mary didn't have any other children. They're Mary's siblings' kids that, that he was hanging out with. The problem with that theory, to try to make sure to keep this idea that Mary was forever virgin, is in in the book of Colossians chapter 4, Mark and Barnabas were called cousins. And it uses a separate word. Like there's a really good word that was common use that meant cousins. And cousins meant cousins and brothers meant brothers. The most natural way to understand this is that Mary had other children. And it's so interesting. There's nothing in the Bible that, that says anything about Mary being a virgin, except to the point of Jesus' birth. And there's nothing outside of that whatsoever beyond. Well, Sean, why why did churches, some churches, made such a big deal of it? I'm glad you asked me that question because you were wanting there in that answer to that question, weren't you? It's so interesting that it wasn't until five hundreds and something, like sixth century to when it became a common thing that was believed in in churches. So over 500 years, over half a millennium later, is when the church began to accept that, Jesus, that Mary was a virgin the rest of her life. Well, what's the big deal? Is that just stuff that churches debate and all that? I'm going to get to the punchline in just a minute while I'm even talking about all of this. What happened was so interesting before the churches kind of accepted that in in the 500s was about 400, there was uh, uh, the Bishop of Rome of that day. Now, later on, looking back, we call them popes at that time. But at that time, it was just a bishop and nothing nothing beyond anything uh, recognition of that way. That he condemned... A particular document that had been written like, uh, like just before 200 A.D., like a hundred, hundred and fifty years before Jesus was born. And this document was trying to kind of tell the story of Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus, kind of the backstory. But it had all kinds of fanciful stuff going in it, and so the, the kind of key leader in all the churches at, at 400 said, don't believe that. That's a fairy tale. Like them saying that, that Mary was always a virgin her whole life, the fact that Mary was born without sin, that's just, that's just made up. That's a, that's a made-up thing. And then 150 years later after that, or 100 years after that person died, the church was believing. I said all that to say this, that the Bible teaches that Jesus had brothers, And there's really only two natural choices here. Either Joseph had a previous marriage and had children by another woman, and Joseph had multiple wives, which there's no evidence in the Bible of any of that, or Mary had children. And the most natural thing is is that Mary did have other children, and it was no big deal to see her move forward. Well, Why did the church ever make a big deal about this? Well, back in the day, there was a lot of controversy that was going on, and some people began saying Jesus really wasn't the Son of God, that he was only a human being. And so to kind of prove that, some in the church said, well, Mary was this really special woman. They were trying to explain how Jesus could be the Son of God and the offspring of Mary at the same time, and how that whole thing worked, and to kind of... Prop Jesus up as a son of God, they ended up propping Mary up. So think of it this way. Well, if we want to prove that Jesus is a superhero, then let's just prove that Mary's a superhero, because anybody that comes from Mary is going to be a superhero. Like, if your mom's a superhero, then you're a superhero. And so over time, it actually began to be the focus on Mary and not Jesus. Well, Sean, I'm still not tracking like why you're spending so much time this morning. I'm doing that because there is confusion now, 1500 years later, exactly of who Mary is and how important she should be in our lives. I want us to notice that even in this little verse 12, the subject of this verse is not Mary, it's Jesus. The Bible's tracking who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and what it's all about. When we looked at the first part of John, it's all about who Jesus is. When we look about anything, it's all about who Jesus is. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says anybody else is of any importance whatsoever except Jesus. When we look at the rest of the the Bible, the New Testament, and it's all about Jesus. In fact, in the book of Colossians, it tells us that in everything, Jesus might have the complete preeminence of our life. So my point this morning is this is that Jesus is the only person born on this earth who is sinless. The only person who died on this earth completely sinless. The only person on this earth who's worth exalting and lifting up. The only one who's worth us looking to. The only one that we should put our hope in. So whether it's Mary and and past church traditions, or whether it's somebody that you look to as a hero in your life, or a previous pastor in your life, or maybe somebody that you're reading or listening to on the radio, and you think, wow, they're awesome, The only person that's worth us putting on a pedestal and really following and worshiping and listening and paying attention to ultimately is Jesus. And anybody else that we pay attention to, they're only worth listening to because they're repeating and explaining the stuff that Jesus said. And really what you're listening to and liking is not so much what they've got to say, but it's what Jesus said. Folks, from all over the Bible, it's about Jesus. So I want to challenge you this morning who have you opened your life to and who have you putting your trust to and are you following traditions of, that have come and gone and up and down and over those years, God doesn't need anybody to tell us who he is. He, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you who I am and I don't care what traditions say about any of that. And so much that we've allowed in our previous church experience and backgrounds for so many of us to believe things that were just something that got filtered in into the past. That's really not what God teaches. Second thing I want you to notice that Jesus is not only the Son of God in his birth, but he's the Son of God in his passion. So Jesus goes into the temple that day, and he sees all the ox and the sheep and all of that. This is Passover time. This is a time when Jews from all around the world would come And they were living out what God told them to do, is that you would take a sacrifice and you would make a sacrifice on that day to signify, to remember me saving the the Jews, saving you as my people out of Egypt. And it was a picture ultimately of the sacrifice that Jesus himself would play when he died on the cross. In fact, this passage is very important because those two are tied together so closely. And so Jews were from all over the world and they were worshiping. Now you need to realize this temple that we're talking about here was an enormous complex the specific temple that Jesus had built, that, that the God had told the Jews you know, to explain how to build, that Herod had rebuilt himself, was according to the specifications, was a relatively small building. But, um, but Herod, being the leader of that land, this was Rome, and they liked to go big or go home, wanted to make it big, and it was actually the largest building in the world of its kind, of any kind of facility. It was one and a half million square feet was this building, There was one block in it, one uh, stone in it, that was 40 feet long. I mean, it's enormous. In fact, the, the, the walls went up 80 feet high and if you've ever built anything or done anything with construction, in order to build a tall building you actually have to build a deep building first. You've got to have footers. The footers for this building went 50 feet into the ground. 50 feet just to support those things. I mean, I think about that one stone, and there's another stone on it. that's on the western wall, the wailing wall, whenever you see the Jews praying and bowing on that wall, there's one of the blocks that's 40 feet long. I get, there's stones in our field right out back. If I get a stone big as that, I'm struggling just to pick that thing up. I don't even, can't even fathom. So I want you to picture an enormous complex, and where these animals would have been would have been the court of the Gentiles, would have been the place that God designed the temple, for people of the world to come to seek him, it was God saying, I want the world to know me. I'm going to make myself known here so that everywhere knows about it. I don't think you could go anywhere in the world today without people knowing New York City. I went to Africa once and said I was from New York. And I had a guy like, oh, do you know my cousin and living in New York? He said, I was talking about the city. I'm like, no, man, I no, sorry. <laughs> no. God wanted the world to say, to know, here's where I am and here's where you can meet with me. And what they had done was to turn that court of Gentiles where you and I would have been allowed to come and pray and to seek God and to hear from God had turned it into a marketplace, an exchange of where people were coming from other places. If you've got to travel by on foot for 2,000 miles, that little sheep that's supposed to be perfect, that little lamb, probably is not looking too good. You don't look too good on your road trips either. You know, you get out of the car and you're like, you know, what state are we in? And so it's just better. You're just like, okay, honey, I got the money. We'll buy one when we get there, right? You know, go to the little vending machine and pop out your lamb and go sacrifice it. It's what they were doing. And at some level, it was a service to the people. But God, Jesus is like, guys, take it across the street. What are you, what are you doing? Later on, this, by the way, Jesus probably did this twice most likely. Cleaned the temple twice. This was the first time. Later on, he says, you guys are a bunch of thieves because they were smart businessmen. You're out of town? You don't know what the going rate for sheep is. This is a special, grade A, one of a kind. And the price just kind of artificially goes up. And oh, you've got to pay a temple tax, and it's got to be in our only accepted coinage. Oh, in exchange rates. Whenever you exchange money, you pay it coming and going and back and forth. And Jesus says, you're stealing from people. Here's the deal. Jesus says, I am the Son of God in this passage because He makes a very bold statement. He says, what you're doing is not right. Take these things away. And in verse 16, He says, do not make my Father's house a house of trade. You see, Jesus came, He said, My Father is in charge. He didn't say, Our Father. He said, My Father. Jesus, nowhere in the Bible, puts Himself on par with us. He never elevates us and says, Our Father, together with Him. Well, Sean, what about the, the, you know, the, the, the Our Father or the, the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven... Read before it. The disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He said, when you pray, pray our Father. He's telling us how to pray. He's not joining us in that prayer. Whenever Jesus talks about the Father, whenever he's praying, he says, my Father. You see, Jesus has a relationship with God in heaven that's different than you and I will ever have. He alone is the Son of God. He alone is the one who proceeds from the Father. He alone is special and unique, which is why... took time with Mary. He alone is the one that we should look to. And he said, guys, you have ruined this. Jesus came to clean house and to serve notice. He said, your religion is rot, it's corrupt, it's a mess. You see what was going on, and as Herod built this temple to impress Rome, to make Rome think that he was a great leader, and he did it to make the Jews happy, You know, they're like, oh, look at this, we've got a great place to live. It was gilded and gleaming with gold, and it was a picture of where they were spiritually in their hearts. On the outside, everything looked good and awesome. They were going through the religious motions. They were sacrificing, doing their thing. They were standing up, sitting down, singing, passing the offering plate, doing their prayers, all of that kind of stuff. But Jesus says, you're a wreck. This is a disaster. Get these things out of here. You see, for you and for me, so often we can go in our life and think we're doing such a good job and patting ourselves on the back, and God in heaven is looking is like, yeah, you may be there on the outside, but you're not where you ought to be on the inside. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was cleaning the the house of their hearts. He said, guys, I got to clean this out. So my challenge to you is when God begins knocking in the door of your life, do you do everything you can to slam that door shut? I'll tell you a secret. God's stronger than you. And he will beat on that door, not because he doesn't like you. He does it because he loves you. And the more you lean against it, the more and the harder he pushes. And I've learned over the years, the harder those things come out. And the more embarrassing and the bigger the mess. And it's a lot better to let God take care of what he needs to do in your life. Because what God is looking for is a pure worship in our heart that knows the Lord Jesus in our soul. It doesn't put stock in all of the things around us Jesus wasn't impressed by any of that and we shouldn't be either matters not whether we worship in a temple or not we ought to be able to worship God in a in an outhouse i really don't want to not like that are you with me on that one you know the porta potty i don't care how much blue stuff you put in there it just is just I'd rather go in the bushes, to be honest with you, than I would in that. But anyway, but it's not your surroundings. It's not your rituals. It's not your traditions. It's not bad teachings you've had in the past. It is, where is your heart today with the Lord Jesus? That's what he wants us to be focused on. Jesus came to fix, as the Son of God, as a Savior, a corrupt and messed up religion. Now, they didn't like it. And you, had you and I been in there, had we been the disciples, I would have probably like, what are you doing? You were so going to get us killed. You, what? I mean, they had to have been, their, their jaws had to have been on the ground like, what in the world is Jesus doing? But the others that he flipped the tables over, they were upset with him. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who gives you the right? Who makes you in charge? In other words, my sister would say, You're not my boss. You know, who made you the boss, right? And Jesus said, Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. This temple had taken, by that time, 46 years to be built. It wasn't finished for another 30 years. And interesting enough, six years after it was finished, God allowed it to be destroyed, and it was raised to the ground, and it's what it is today. Well, what Jesus was telling them in very clear terms. This temple of my body, you are going to kill. You're going to take it. Jesus didn't commit suicide. He allowed himself to be killed. But I'm going to raise it up in three days. By the way, that's significant. When you raise yourself from the dead, that's one step beyond somebody else raising you from the dead. I don't understand it all. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. There's one God we serve, but Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. He is the Son of God. And they missed it because they were so focused on all the external stuff, following all the traditions and the rules that their religion had piled on and had done wrong and all the bad junk. You read the life of Jesus, this their whole religious system had been corrupted and changed. To be honest with you, that's the tendency of human nature in all churches and all denominations and all faiths is to take something that's good that God puts in there and to change it and corrupt it and somehow to turn it to your own good. And it's a warning to all of us, even River at our young age. But Jesus claimed to be the Son of God in His resurrection. I am going to raise up myself. I'm going to do it. Jesus was saying, this old religion that you're adhering to, that you make it all about this temple and all about this stuff, that's going away. I'm going to die, you're going to kill me, and I'm going to raise myself up in three days, and I'm going to usher in a whole new world of grace that's no longer about the law, that it's about the grace. Jesus is signifying that they were in a cataclysmic, world-altering shift spiritually that God was bringing to completion his salvation, and they missed the whole thing of it. Here's the challenge for you and for me. The whole of our faith should be rooted in simply Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And anything else after that is pretty much worthless. It's all about that. Anything after that that we put any stock in, saying this is what makes me a good person, this is why I hope to go to heaven, this is why I think I'm okay, because i had this thing in my background, or I come from this family, or I've done all... Anything else... Is worthless. And it's basically you and I trying to domesticate God. You know the difference between a wild animal and a domestic animal? Is a wild animal does what it wants to, when it wants to, the way it wants to, how it wants to, and doesn't ask anybody for permission. Now, sometimes it gets them killed, but they still are going to do it, right? Chipmunks, I mean, crossroad when they want to. If you live in the country where I am, I swear they have a death wish. They like wait till you drive and then they just you know choose to come out. But they do what they want to when they want to. Domestic animals learn to do what you want them to do. Not always well, but they kind of do what you want to do. We're domesticating, I guess a wild cat, a feral cat, right? This cat kind of started coming into our garage and I know you like, Sean, you've talked down on cats. Like, why are you now like taking care of this cat? So we went to, I just, I don't know. I just felt sorry for the cat, It had beautiful blue eyes. And I'm like, wow, you're an amazing looking cat. So anyhow, so we've got this cat. I caught it with a fishing net, which is not a good way to make friends with a cat. But we had to catch it and go get it taken care of because I didn't I didn't know we didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. We're out there with binoculars. Like, can you tell? Is that a boy or a girl? What is that? I didn't want kittens around. And so long story short, it is now in the house and it does not like it. It's like, who are you? And like, what are we doing? We are domesticating this cat and it actually is now we're like, oh, that's kind of nice. Couple meals a day, this is a pretty good deal. Here's the thing we as people for centuries have tried to domesticate God. And God is a wild God. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, the way he wants to do it, does not ask anybody permission at all. And most people, if not every person, has spent most of their life trying to get God to do what they want them to do, when they want them to do it, how they want to do it, and bend them to do what they want to do. And God's not going to let it happen. He's a lot more wild, and a lot more serious than some dumb cat. By the way, my strategy of cats, I now have four cats. I know I've got four daughters. So the next four, I got four daughters that are not married. I've got one that's already married. The next four when they get married, when the guy says, hey, can we get married? That's my test to know if he really loves her. You're going to adopt a cat. <laughs> and if the guy takes the girl and the cat, I know he's okay, right? That's my that's my, that's my strategy now, so I got my four we're going to move on with. But back to the real thing. God refuses to be domesticated. Now, folks, before people really surrender to Jesus, that's what we spend our life doing, trying to force God to accept us based on us being good enough, based on us being religious enough, based on us doing all of this stuff, and God's like, yeah, I'm... I'm not going to bend to you. You've got to come to me based on my terms. And God's terms are the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. That's the only way that we are forgiven of our sins, have a relationship with Him. It's not about our religiousness or our goodness or any of that stuff. It's all based on Jesus. Fourth thing, and I'm done quickly, is Jesus is the Son of God in his knowledge. He's not only the son of God in his birth, he's the son of God in his passion for his father's house, he's the son of God in his resurrection, raised himself from the dead, but he's the son of God in what he knows. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, again Jesus is always a subject, it's always about him. He's in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. He did some miracles there that we don't know was about. He did some other things, flipping over the tables whatever. There's some people that are like, whoa, Whoa, this guy might be the guy. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself was, knew what was in a man. You know, sometimes we treat God flippantly. Oh, God believes in me. God trusts me. No, he doesn't. Don't fool yourself. Oh, my goodness, It's one of the dumbest things any of us could ever say. Me and God got it worked out. No, you don't. God doesn't work anything out with you. God works out for himself <laughs> what he wants, not with you. Jesus knew what was inside of them. These people had a starter, what I would call a starter faith. When it says that they believed in his signs, the things they did, this was not full-grown, finished, saving faith, surrendered faith that we talk about. This was faith that said, wow, that guy just did something amazing. I believe in that. They didn't believe in Jesus for who he was and what he was going to do on the cross. They just believed in this amazing thing that he did then. Was that a bad thing? No. But was it what they fully needed ultimately? Not at all. It was the first step of faith. I talked a couple of weeks ago about, you know, coming and seeing Jesus and then, and then you believe in surrender along the way. They had not. This was more of a come-and-see kind of faith. They're like, whoa, there's something there. Wow, that was amazing. I believe in that. But they had not fully surrendered because these even these apostles didn't fully get it till later on. They didn't understand. And Jesus, being the, the Son of God, did not entrust Himself to people. God doesn't trust us with anything, folks. I mean, yes, He... He empowers us, and yes, He calls us to do things, and He gives us the responsibility to be stewards. But truth of the matter is, the only way we get anything done, any good at all in our life and with others, is because of what He does in us. In and of ourselves, He doesn't commit Himself to us. We commit ourselves to Him. It works the other way around. Because Jesus knows what's in us. In the book of Mark, Jesus says this about what is inside of people. Jesus says, it's not that what goes into a man that defiles him. He says, it's what comes out of him. Verse 1, he says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, desiring stuff you shouldn't, too much in the way you shouldn't. And yeah, that can sometimes mean food, clothes, money, power, influence, all kinds of stuff. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things come from within, and they defile a person. I've noticed in our culture, where increasingly, people are blaming things on uh, their mental health. Oh, well, I, I need to check my mental health. I just had anger or whatever. And it's a backdoor way of kind of blaming what's going on with us and not let us be at fault. And Jesus says the stuff that's inside of you, the envy and the greed and the pride and the bad stuff, that's why you do bad things. Don't blame it on a a sickness. You're just sinful people. And Jesus said, I know who you guys are. I'm not committing myself to you because I know those things. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, he prayed in, in Kings, and I won't take time to read it, But he said, Lord, would you forgive when we have messed up and people come after me, they've messed up and they come to this place and they ask forgiveness and they seek you, would you forgive for you alone know the hearts of people. You alone. See, Jesus is a son of God and what he knows about you and me. Folks, if that is not a humbling, sobering thought for our life, that the God of heaven right now knows what is inside of you, not just the thing you're thinking about, but the motives and your maneuvering and all of that in every area of your life, that he knows in intricate detail everything of your life. He's the Son of God. And because of it, he doesn't commit himself to you. Instead, he says, you need to commit yourself to me. You need to come to me on my terms. You see, many people, especially if you've been brought up in church in your life, you need to realize that in some of your past experiences or beliefs or teachings or things that you've either accepted or done or that you put value in, that's really more like those tables that Jesus flipped over and says, that is not what this is about. And what I encourage you to do is to realize that the faith that you had then as a child, maybe a faith of just God loves me and is going to take care of me, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to get through this okay, that that's good. But that's a starter faith. And what Jesus is asking and telling us, as we're going to continue to see in the book of John, is he says, you've got to get to surrendering faith to where you accept on my terms what I came to do for you. And that is you turning from your sin and admitting all of that that's inside of you that I already know, and you turn to me, and you simply say, Lord Jesus, would you be in charge of my life? Would you save me? I trust you and you alone. You, it's, that's you surrendering, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Are there secret, special, hocus-pocus incantation words you have to say? no. Technically, the prayer anyway doesn't save you. It's that surrendering of your heart and believing in Jesus is what saves you. But it's good to say things out loud, right? It's good to to articulate that, to say that. So this morning, the challenge with Jesus as the Son of God in His, in his knowledge is accepting and allowing Him to challenge you with those things and surrendering and saying, Lord, I'm going to stop blocking that door and I'm going to let you clean that out. And if if you've never really taken that step in the past, then the first step you do is say, Lord Jesus, would you come and do that to save me and forgive me? I want to be your follower. I want to be your child. It's all about you. And when you take that one first step, then after that you can know that when Jesus moves into your house, into the, your soul, that for the rest of your life, he's going to clean up a little bit here and a little bit there. He doesn't do it all at once. You might power wash it one day, and you're like, whoa, I didn't know that was that dirty. He's like, yeah, I know, but I did. It's time to clean it up. He makes his way into the closets and more in the rest of your life. The Bible calls that sanctification. He, he purifies us and cleans us up. So this morning, church, I don't know where you are in all of that, but Jesus being the son of God has profound implications for your life and mine. Who's your real hero that you're looking to? We should be challenged by that. Are we allowing Jesus to clean us up? We should be challenged by that. So we recognize that he alone is the one that we look to and nothing, no one else, no hope and churches, denominations, people, parents, religious, anything but only in Him? And do you allow Him to continue to sweep out the corners of your soul? Are you allowing Him to do that now? Is He even, as we're talking, or maybe in the days before, but has He been speaking to you about some of those things? If He has, your response should be, Lord, I'm listening And I will do what you're telling me to do. Allow him to clean it up. Don't rebel. Don't be prideful. But say, Lord, I'll do it. Just obey what he said. Do what Mary said last week. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. No better advice given in the world for anything. Whatever the Lord Jesus tells you to do, do it. So as our team comes up and prays, that's my challenge to you this morning. Respond to God. Respond to Jesus as the son of God. He alone is worthy. Pray with me, would you? Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his goodness. Thank you, Father, that you receive us. Lord, you are not impressed with anything that we do because you know what's really inside of us. You don't just know what's on the outside. You know full well what's on the inside. And you came anyway. Lord Jesus, You died for us, knowing all the things that we have ever done and ever would do. I must confess, Lord, there's part of that that's scary, but beyond that, that is such, and and humbling, but beyond that, there is such love and grace that is unbelievable. I thank You for that, Father. My prayer is that everyone here this morning would know that well. pray this in Jesus' name.